Turning to Psalm 7. Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in Thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it. Yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in Thine anger. Lift up Thyself because of the rage of Mine enemies. And awake for Me to the judgment that Thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass Thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return Thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge Me, O Lord, according to My righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. Let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity and hath conceived mischief and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. That's where we read God's holy and inerrant words. May God add His blessing upon the reading of His holy scriptures. It's on the basis of Psalm 7 and many other passages of the Word of God that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 4. Lord's Day 4, question 9, Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil, 
in his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins. And will punish them in His just judgment temporally and eternally. As He hath declared, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore His justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, what this Lord's Day teaches unto us is that there is no escape from the judgment of God. All three questions and answers of Lord's Day 4 are directed unto that end to demonstrate unto us the impossibility of avoiding God's justice. Each one of these questions might say were written from the perspective of a man who is trying to wiggle his way out from underneath of the weight of God's justice. This man is desperate for an attempt to find a way to avoid it. And so, from several different angles, he tries to find a way in which he can avoid the justice of God. This is a man who understands, acknowledges the truths of the previous Lord's Days. This man acknowledges the fact that he is sinful. He acknowledges the fact that there is a law And that law comes from God. And he acknowledges that the requirement of that law is love, as Lord's Day 2 teaches. This man acknowledges the truth of Lord's Day 3, that it's not God's fault that man is so wicked and so perverse. But man, by his own willful disobedience, fell into sin. And yet this individual, recognizing that he has broken that law of God, now is confronted with the justice of God. And this individual is desperate to try to squirm his way out from having to be confronted with that soul-crushing weight of the divine justice of God. And so he asks, question 9, doth not God then do an injustice to man? Isn't this unfair of God 
to require something which man cannot perform. He tries again, question 10. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Can God simply forget about the fact that I've sinned? Question 11. One last desperate attempt. Is not God then also merciful? Does not His mercy cancel out His justice? And the unwavering and unchanging answer of the Heidelberg Catechism is, God's justice stands. Man must stand before God, the great judge. The psalmist understood this truth. Psalm 7, verse 8. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. Judge me, O Lord. We look at that theme this morning, dividing it in three points. First of all, seeing the inescapable judgment. Second, seeing the extreme punishment, the language of the catechism that will be punished with extreme punishment. And then third, the gracious verdict of God. Inescapable judgment. Question nine, doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? What this question is getting at here is asking is this, is it not unfair of God to demand of us something that God knows full well that we are incapable of doing? If we were to demand of a child that a child was to design a home, And then after that child had designed that home, the child was to go gather the the building materials for that home. And the children, the child was to cut the wood and to pound in the nails and to construct that home. And then that child was to go live independently in that home that he had designed and constructed. And if that child refused to carry out this commandment, then that child would face the wrath of mom and dad and be punished for not going out and building that home. If we were to hear of such a scenario, we would say, well, that is unfair to put such expectations upon that child. The young child doesn't have the ability to design and then to build the home. And so, it would not be appropriate for mom and dad to punish the child for refusing to build that home. That's the thought behind this question. Is it unfair of God to demand of us 
that we perfectly obey His commandments. Now you understand that to ask this question is to be very presumptuous. To ask, is it unfair, is to believe that I have the right to go into the presence of God. It is to believe that I have the right within the presence of God to ask a question of Him. And it is to believe that God must answer the question that I put before Him. To ask this question, is it unfair of God to demand of us something that we cannot do is to take the Creator God and put Him in the courtroom with us as the judges. You understand how presumptuous this question is. Is it unfair of God? Not only is this a presumptuous question, but from a certain perspective, this is a pointless question. Pointless because what is the answer to this question going to change? Let us say that one does call God into question and examines whether God is fair in what God demands of His children. Let's say that one concludes that indeed God is unjust in what He requires of us. That that God is demanding that which is impossible for us to do, and therefore God is wrong for having such requirements of His children. Let's say that one were to reach that conclusion. Then the question remains, does it change anything? Simply because you conclude that God's demands are unjust does not take away from the fact that God is God and God's laws Stand. One might reach the personal conclusion that God is unfair in what He's requiring of me, but that in no way, shape, or form takes away from the holy and the unchanging law of God. How presumptuous, and from another perspective, how pointless is this question. Is God unfair? Does He do an injustice to man? And yet recognizing that this is a presumptuous question, is this not something that we can relate to? This question of equity and fairness on behalf of God? If we are being honest and truthful, does it not feel at times that God is expecting too much of us? Especially when one is overwhelmed 
with hardships and difficulties, when there's the burden of so many responsibilities, when there's pain, both pain in the body as well as afflictions in the heart and in the soul, then is it not the temptation of man to murmur and to complain unto God and to think unto oneself that God is demanding too much of me? After all, God knows I can't do it. God knows that I have lost my ability to keep His commandments. And yet God still imposes this law upon me. Is it not unfair? We might entertain that thought in our own hearts and minds. The catechism answers the question for us. Does God do an injustice to man? The answer, not at all. Not at all. Why? Because God made man capable of performing it. Earlier, we raised the scenario of the young child who could be demanded by the parents to do something that the child doesn't have the ability to do. We would understand that that situation would be unfair. But there's an important difference between the illustration that was given of the parents demanding something of the child and God demanding something of us. And the difference between the illustration and our relationship with God is this, beloved. The child never had the ability to design and construct and live independently in that home. And because the child never had the ability to do that, therefore it would be unfair of the parents to demand that of the child. But in distinction from that is how God has created man. And the confession we make is that God created man capable of performing it. That is, God gave unto man the ability to keep His good and just commandments. When God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, God created them in His image with the knowledge of God in righteousness and in holiness. And man then, as he in a creaturely way resembled God, man had the ability to keep that law of God. Adam was capable of loving God, and Eve was likewise capable of loving God and loving the neighbor. And so it's not as if God created us with a handicap. It's not as if God created us in such a way that we never could have kept those commandments given unto us. No, God gave unto us the strength, the faculty, the abilities so that we can love God and that we can love the neighbor. It's not God's fault, but it's ours. The catechism goes on. For God made man capable of performing it, but man, by the instigation of the devil, 
and by His own willful disobedience deprived Himself and all His posterity of those divine gifts. A divine gift of bearing the image of God. A divine gift of having fellowship with God. Being the friend servant of God. That divine gift of being able to speak with God in the beauty of holiness was lost. And who lost it? We did. Through Adam. That's why the Catechism emphasizes we may not cry unfair as we stand before the justice and the judgment of God. We cannot squirm our way out of this justice by claiming that God requires of something that goes beyond what we are capable of doing. Yes, it is true that right now we cannot keep the law of God. But originally, God gave us that ability. Inescapable judgment from another perspective... And that, consider now from in question and answer 11. Question 11, is not God then also merciful? And the thought here of this question is this. Does not God's mercy cancel out God's justice? Yes, they questioner acknowledges, I understand that God is a God of justice and equity and fairness, but do not the Scriptures speak of also of the mercy of God? And then the questioner would go on to say, and does not the mercy of God stand on the foreground in God's divine being? So that instead of the justice and the holiness of God being preeminent, being revealed and evident unto us so that we are confronted with the justice of God, the questioner here would say, does not the mercy of God come to the foreground? So that the justice of God is or recedes to the background. So when we stand face to face with God, we are not struck with how unworthy we are to be in His holy presence, but instead we're struck with the the mercy and the grace of God. The idea is that the one attribute of God cancels out the other attribute of God. It's an either-or situation. Either God is a God of mercy and grace unto His people, or God is a God of justice and a God of holiness. And so this questioner then, presumptuous as the former question was, dares to suggest that the mercy one attribute of God cancels out the justice and the holiness of God. 
Is not God then also merciful? And thus he can simply forget about the sins which have been committed against him. Answer of the Catechism, God is indeed merciful, but also just. And therefore, His justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God be also punished. We cannot, we may not, take one attribute of God what we might consider to be a gentler attribute of God, and say that that more gentle attribute of God eliminates or cancels out his more stern attribute of judgment. And yet, we can struggle with this, can we not? The fact that God is a God of judgment. Talk to anybody in the world about love and peace, and their faces will light up, and they'll be receptive to your instruction. But then talk to someone in the world about the holy justice of God, about divine retribution for sins, And they will frown, they will turn away, and they will cover their ears. And it's not just people of the world who can respond this way to the justice of God, but also Christians, Protestant Reformed Christians, can and do respond to the subject of the justice of God in this way. Many in the church world would play down the truth of God's justice and would rather have the minister speak mostly, if not exclusively, about the grace and the love and the kindness of God. Speak to us about how God loves us even though we are sinful but don't emphasize the holy wrath of God. Christian people will speak much about God's kindness and God's love, but have virtually nothing to say about God's justice. To have such an attitude toward the justice of God reveals, beloved, and ignorance about what the Bible teaches about justice. The Scriptures frequently speak of God as the judge. That's the name that the Scriptures use in speaking of Him, that God is the great Judge, Genesis 18, verse 25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Hebrews 12, verse 23, God, the judge of all. 
And it's not just the names of God that would indicate that He is the God of justice, but also the record of history as it's given unto us in the Scriptures shows that God is indeed the God of justice. Adam and Eve sinned against God and there was immediate and swift justice as Adam and Eve were barred out of the Garden of Eden and the flaming cherubim guarded the entryway. During Noah's day, there was wickedness over the face of the earth. And again, there was justice revealed as God sent the flood and that flood destroyed every single person upon this earth except eight souls. Later on in history, when the Israelites were in Egypt, God revealed His justice as during that tenth plague, the angel of death went throughout the land of Egypt, and wherever there was not blood sprinkled on the doorpost, there was the death of the firstborn. And then the Israelites crossed through the Red Sea, which the Egyptians are saying to do so were drowned. And then the Israelites went out into the wilderness, and Korah, Dathan, and Abiram led a rebellion against the God-appointed leaders and the earth swallowed them up alive. And then the Israelites went into the land of promise, that land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did God do to the inhabitants who had taken over the land during the exile, the, the, the time that the Israelites were in Egypt? God destroyed the Canaanites. God is a God of justice. What happened to the Israelites when they as a nation corporately turned away from Jehovah and went after Baal and Asherah? God sent them into captivity for 70 years. God is a God of justice. But one might respond to that and say, well, that's all, those are all Old Testament examples. Yes, I can see perhaps that that's a theme throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, but in the New Testament, there's a change. And in the New Testament, now the gentler attributes of God come to the foreground. And now in the New Testament, we see the grace and the love and the tender loving kindness of God revealed. But justice and emphasis upon the law is done away with in the New Testament. Then I call your attention to Jerusalem, which was destroyed because they had crucified God's Son. I call your attention to Ananias Ananias and Sapphira who were struck dead immediately because they lied to the church. Then I would call your attention unto Herod who was eaten up with worms according to Acts 21 because he refused to give God the glory. Nowhere 
do the Scriptures teach that the mercy of God cancels out His justice. To be opposed to the notion, the teaching of judgment is to be opposed to the Scriptures themselves. One writer, A.W. Pink, in his book, The Attributes of God, says, A study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. Can we escape judgment by appealing to His mercy. Yes, God is merciful, but also just. Therefore, His justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God be also punished. Inescapable judgment. But now before we proceed to the second point and see how extreme this punishment is, we do well to consider this question. Can we love the fact that God is the just judge? Is this a truth simply that we must acquiesce unto? Simply a truth that will begrudgingly admit is found throughout the Scriptures that, yes, God is a God of justice who destroys the evildoer, but it's not particularly a truth that I love. It's not particularly something that I delight in thinking about. In fact, I would almost think it would be better off if God were not a God of justice. Is it possible for you and me to love God? as the God of justice. Beloved, I firmly believe that it is not just possible to love God as the God of justice, but it is the only way that we will ever love Him because He is the God of justice. And I illustrate that to you with the figure of an earthly judge. Imagine that you had been wronged. Imagine that the neighbor had come and hurt you in some way, had come into your home, had robbed your possessions, had stolen even your children from you. You then went to the court of law. You went to the judge. And the judge acknowledged the fact that your possessions, yea, even your children, had been taken from you. And yet, the judge did nothing about it. The judge did not attempt to find the one who had stolen your children from you. But the judge simply admonished you, you should be merciful. You should show kindness. 
to the one who hurt you in such a way. If you were in such a spot, you would not respond to that judge with love, but you would hate him. We love God because God is the God of justice. How great is His punishment? The Catechism describes His punishment as extreme. Question 11. Is not God then also merciful? He is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, His justice requires that sin which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God be also punished with extreme. That is, everlasting punishment of body and soul. The punishment that God will and does inflict upon the evildoer is so great and so severe that our earthly fallen minds cannot even fully comprehend the magnitude of His punishment. The Catechism uses several different words to describe this punishment of God. It says in the first place that His punishment is everlasting. That there is no end unto His punishment. Men, wicked men upon this earth can and do inflict terrible pain upon others. Wicked men can break in and steal. Wicked men can persecute. Wicked men can seek to destroy the neighbor's honor and lay that honor in the dust. Even as the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 7. But no wicked man upon this earth can inflict upon the neighbor everlasting pain. For the person who is upon this earth and who suffers, there always is the hope of the end of that temporal earthly suffering. And at the very least, what the individual who is suffering on this earth has, the hope of is death. Death provides the suffering person on this earth an end to the suffering at the hands of other wicked men. But with God, There is no end to the punishment that he inflicts upon the evil doer. Everlasting punishment. Death provides no escape from the punishment and the wrath of God. And then the Catechism goes on to describe this extreme punishment. It is punishment in body and in soul. Again, wicked man upon this earth can do terrible things to the body of the neighbor. But he cannot touch the soul. Jesus confessed that truth. Matthew 10, verse 28 And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, 
but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. God is able to touch even the innermost part of man and so afflict the soul of man that man's soul is disquieted, that man's soul has no hope within him, that man's soul has no peace within him. How weak then, how impotent is that man who is destroyed by God in both body and in soul. A man who has hope within his soul, who has peace within his soul, might be able to resist and stand up against great physical suffering. If a man knows that he is at peace with God, if a man knows that he is justified for Jesus' sake his sins, that man is able to endure great wickedness and great harm at the hands of evil men. But what man can stand up who is destroyed not only in the body, but also in the soul? The man who has no peace, no hope, but who is disquieted all the day long. How great is this extreme punishment of God. It's this, beloved. It is to live under the curse of God. The divine punishment is the wrath of God revealed against the sins of mankind. The end of answer 10 as he hath declared, quoting Galatians, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Cursed is everyone. There we are given what is at the essence of punishment from God. It is His wrath. The Scriptures use many different figures to speak of hell. The Scriptures speak of fire and brimstone. The Scriptures speak of weeping and of gnashing of teeth. The Scriptures speak of that lake of fire that will not be quenched. Graphic and important, though these pictures are that the Scriptures give unto us of hell, they are but that, pictures. The worst part of hell will not be the lake of fire, will not be the fire and brimstone, will not be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the thing that makes hell terrible is that man is confronted daily with the wrath of God. Psalm 7, 
verse 11, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. And we mustn't imagine God's wrath in the same way in which we imagine or which we understand wrath. Oftentimes, the wrath of man is an emotional outburst. Oftentimes, the wrath of man is something that's uncontrolled, something that comes out even against his will, and then later on, man regrets that he had such uncontrolled wrath. We mustn't imagine the wrath of God in such a way. It's not as if God is going to lose control of his emotions, that God, as it were, is going to blow up against those who have sinned against him and then later on reflect on that moment of wrath and regret it. No, not at all. But the wrath of God is a deliberate, a controlled, and an appropriate response to the wickedness of man. It is because man willfully shook his face, shook his hands in the face of God that God then will condemn that individual to everlasting perdition. That's hell. Having God angry at me every single day. The severity of the punishment is not determined by you or by me but the severity of the punishment is determined by the one against whom the sins are committed. The one against whom we have sinned is the thrice holy God. The Catechism in answer 11 says that we have sinned against the holy majesty of God. Because man has sinned against a God who is pure light and in whom there is no darkness at all, man deserves to face his judgment. Inescapable judgment, extreme punishment. But is there any hope? Hope that the child of God has is that God will be gracious in the verdict that He gives. This gracious verdict will not be given unto all, but this gracious verdict will be given exclusively to God's chosen ones, the elect. This is a truth that we confess in the Belgic Confession, Article 37. Quote, the elect and faithful shall be crowned with glory and honor. 
But the elect and the elect only may anticipate that they will be crowned with glory and with honor. And countless throngs of those who are unrepentant, of those who refuse to walk in ways of love with God and with the neighbor, of those who delight in unrighteousness and refuse the admonitions of God in His Word, as that word is preached, and as that word is applied even through the visits of the elders, the individual who refuses to hearken unto that word of God may not expect that he will be crowned with glory and with honor. But God, great judge through His Son Jesus Christ, will open up in the judgment day, the books of the consciences, and every man will be judged according to his works, whether they be good or whether they be evil. Every idle word spoken by man will be examined by God. Even those words which are spoken in jest and in amusement. And then the wicked, having been examined by Jesus Christ, a great judge, will be cast away into everlasting punishment of God. For them, quote, the consideration of the judgment is justly terrible and dreadful, according to the same article of the Belgic Confession. Who would want such a terrible and severe judgment upon the wicked? Would we dare to say that I want God to judge the wicked in such a terrible way? It is evident that the psalmist desired such judgment from God Himself. Psalm 7, verse 6, the psalmist pleads, Arise, O Lord, in Thine anger, lift up Thyself because of the rage of Mine enemies, and awake for Me to the judgment that Thou hast commanded. But why? Why would the psalmist plead for God to rise up in judgment against the wicked? Doesn't this reek of haughtiness of heart, of pride and of arrogance? Does not this have within it the stench of an individual who thinks that he is self-righteous and in his conceited position looks down upon all the base and the evil wicked, and having puffed himself up with pride, now asks of God to strike down with the heavy hand of judgment all the wicked. What we must understand, beloved, is is this desire for the judgment of the wicked is not at all rooted in pride or in arrogance. 
that the desire for the judgment of the wicked is rooted in a love for God. It's because the psalmist loved God, communed with God, and was thankful unto God for what God had done for him, that the psalmist pleaded of God to stand for justice. To the wicked, there is no hope. But for the child of God, there is the certain confidence that God for Jesus' sake, will graciously spare. For Jesus' sake, God will graciously spare in the judgment day. Not because of anything that we have done to merit with God. Not because we personally have made satisfaction of the requirements that God has given to us through His holy law. But for Jesus' sake, God's grace and God's mercy do not cancel out God's justice. Yes, God is merciful, but God is also just. And the justice of God requires that satisfaction be made. And that satisfaction was made by none other than by God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered that punishment of God, so that you and I do not have to fear the punishment of Him. Jesus Christ endured eternal suffering compressed into the six hours of the cross. Jesus Christ suffered in both body and soul upon the cross, so much that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But because Jesus made that sacrifice once for all, the Christian may for Jesus' sake anticipate the judgment day. We do not fear it. We are not anxious of what the verdict will be. But we are confident that God, for Jesus' sake, will crown with glory and honor His his elect and His faithful. May God give us faith to believe His wonderful works through Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Lord and our God, it is only because of Thy mercies that we are not consumed for Thy compassions fail not. They are new to us every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Amen.